Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, we're going to continue on here in our series that we've been calling Culture Shift. And as we do, it's really uh, my joy and an honor to introduce our our speaker today. Um, I first saw Sam speak, I think it was about three years ago. And what captured me in the moment, uh, Sam was speaking on a subject not unlike what we're going to hear today, something of his own personal journey as well. And and in that gathering, when you, when you deal with difficult conversations, you'll often find that people, especially when they're given an opportunity to ask questions, which they were, there are people that are going to fall on, on different ends of the spectrum. Some people will strongly, even to an insensitive level, try to agree with that issue. And then there are others who will strongly disagree and make that known. What I was impressed with is how Sam was able to not only bring a clarity of thought to the issue, a command of scripture to the issue, um, but also um, a real thoughtfulness and a compassionate heart in a way that really shaped both of those ends of the spectrum. You found people who were very insensitive beginning to understand what compassion is all about, and then even people who were strongly in disagreement, um, not only being challenged, but, but changed, really, in their response, even in the, the Q&A portion. And so um, today, hopefully, we're going to experience some of that from a gentleman who resides in the UK but speaks all over the world. Uh, he's also an international best-selling author. He's got a number of hobbies from history and jokes to Thai green curry. And if uh, I'm a Thai fan, so if you ever want to experiment on somebody, I'm your guinea pig. Okay? Can you please join me warmly welcome Sam Alberry? Well, good morning. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. Thank you very much for for having me. Um, I work with Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries. I I know you're familiar uh, with our team and with our ministry, and we're so grateful for all your encouragement and all your support. So I was keen to come here to to speak, but really wanted to come here just to say thank you uh, for all you do to encourage us. Well, our theme this morning is, is Jesus and sexuality. I was talking to a friend a uh, Christian friend last week, who was saying to me his observation is that even the name of Jesus is becoming a big taboo. Uh, he was saying that he was with a gathering of friends. That, I can't remember how the topic came up. But as soon as he mentioned Jesus, everyone kind of immediately tried to, to move the subject onto something else. They were happy to talk about Game of Thrones and any number of other things that previous generations would have been uncomfortable talking about. But, but Jesus himself just makes people uncomfortable. Just the word is is controversial. We're talking about Jesus and sexuality. So we're talking about two controversial things together. We're kind of cubing the, the, the controversy. And yet we're not talking about these things, I take it, because we love wading into controversial issues. Uh, we want to think about this issue because when we think about an issue like human sexuality, we're we're thinking of people people that we know, 
uh, people that are very dear to us, particularly when we think about issues like LGBT identity and practice and all those sorts of things. Again, we're not, we're not thinking about society out there and, and where society's going. We're thinking about people who are close to us, people that we love very, very dearly. Uh, this is all about people. And I'm sure almost all of us will have some within our close orbit who would either identify as LGBT or who would be same-sex attracted. And yet for some of us, it's even closer to home than that. Uh, it's not just that we know people for whom this is deeply personal, but for some of us in the room today, this will be part of our own experience and part of our own story as well. That's certainly the case with me. The only real romantic and sexual feelings I've, I've had have been towards other men. It took me a long time to kind of figure that out. But I remember when I was 14 or 15, my, my best friend at high school started dating a girl for the first time. And as he was sharing that news with, with a group of us friends, I just remember everyone else kind of enthusing and congratulating him. And I just remember feeling really crushed and I, I didn't know why. I hadn't consciously thought about him in any romantic or, or sexual way, but, but clearly I was already forming a deep emotional attachment to him. And so the thought that he was now really intimate with somebody else left me feeling very threatened. It left me feeling very vulnerable. And as the months went on, I began to realise I was, I was just developing in a way that was different to my friends. I was at an all-boys high school, and we only ever talked about two things, sport and girls. Um, I'm no good at sport. Uh, if it's possible for your centre of gravity to be outside of your body, I think mine is. Because anything involving coordination and poise and balance, I'm hopeless at. And I wasn't much good at talking about girls either, because whenever the question came round, who do you like? Is there anyone that you are wanting to pursue romantically? I would have to change the subject or make someone up. And if the, the question came to me, so who, so who do you like? I would think quick, think of a girl's name, uh, Denise. Yeah, I like a girl called Denise. And that wouldn't get me off the hook because they would then say, oh, do we know her? And I'd have to say, um, no, no, I don't think you do know her. She's, um, yeah, she's not from around here. She's, um, she's actually from Norway. So no, you won't know her or ever meet her or even be able to verify her existence. Never occurred to anyone that Denise isn't a traditional Scandinavian name, but there we go. Uh, when I was about 17, I was traveling back from, from school one day and I was waiting for the bus to arrive, and I don't know why this revelation came to me at a bus stop, but it did. But as I, I was stood there, I remember thinking to myself for the very first time, I think I'm gay. And the moment those words formed themselves in that order in my head, I realised it was true. I thought, well, of, of course I am. I, I don't have romantic and sexual feelings towards, other, towards women, but I, I do have them towards some guys. And I remember thinking at that point, well, I was applying to university and I was thinking, maybe I can explore this when I go to university. No one at home would need to know. I knew that the, the universities I was applying for in those days had LGB societies. I thought, well, I can, I can see how this goes there and lead a double life. This was, I'm ashamed to say, pre-internet. So that was entirely conceivable to be one thing in, in one place and, and nobody back home know. 
But in between standing at that bus stop and arriving at university, something else happened, which is that I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I had a couple of good friends who were Christian believers. They invited me to their church uh, youth ministry one weekend. I went along thinking, I'm not massively interested, but I, I like these friends and I want to honour them and, and see what makes them tick. And what I heard that very first time reshaped my understanding of Christianity because I began to realise the message of Jesus is not that God has come to this earth to congratulate the good. What I began to realise is that God has come to this earth to seek the lost. And I began to realise in my, my 17 year old mind that I was lost from God, that there was a creator who had made me and I didn't know him. And I knew that that was on me and not on him. And so over the next few weeks, I, I began to realise that Christ had come for me. He had died for me. He had raised himself from the grave for me. And so I became a follower of Jesus. So as a new disciple of Jesus, who had only recently begun to recognise the sort of direction and shape of his own sexuality that the big pressing question for me was what does Jesus say about human sexuality I had no idea I just knew that I wanted to follow him and so I assumed whatever he would say was going to be okay because it was him so let me share with you a few of the, the passages that then began to answer that question for me of, of what, does, what does Jesus say about these things and I want us to look at some verses um, from Matthew's Gospel. They're going to be up on the, the screen as well. Or if you've got a Bible with you, do um, grab that as well, if that would help. But the first is, is Matthew 5, uh, verses 27 to 28. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says these words. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, Jesus is recognising that the, the audience, the Jewish audience he was speaking to, knew the Ten Commandments. So they had heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus follows that up by, by showing them how that commandment really applies. Uh, most of them would have assumed the commandment meant that as long as I haven't physically had an affair then I'm okay, I haven't broken that commandment. And we can imagine a lot of the, the, the men listening would have thought that this, this commandment they were pretty safe on. But Jesus unpacks the, the true intent of that commandment and says it's not just about your actions, it's about your heart. He says, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, adultery doesn't have to take place in a bedroom. It takes place in our heart and in our minds. If I can put it this way, it's not just about what we do with our genitals, it's what we do with our eyes. It's what we do with our thoughts. And Jesus says that if we look at someone lustfully, if we look at someone as if their flesh is meant to be a commodity to satisfy us, Jesus says we've broken this commandment. So the very first thing we, we need to recognise is that by, by Jesus' definition, all of us naturally 
are sexual sinners. Uh, notice too, by the way, this is really significant, what, what Jesus is implying about the person being looked at. Jesus says in this case that a woman who is being looked at lustfully, he is saying that person has a sexual integrity that is so precious to Jesus it mustn't be broken even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Jesus has the highest view of our sexual integrity. So that's the first thing I, I began to realise is if if I've got a problem with Jesus on this issue, it's because all of us do. And his words actually are, are deeply convicting for all of us, if we understand them rightly. Uh, next passage is Matthew 15. And Jesus is talking here to uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, and the key thing to know about them is they, they had a very clear concept of sin, but their belief was that sin is, is somewhere out there and it really needs to be avoided. It, it's a bit like a, an infection or a contagion. You just have to avoid it and then you will remain spiritually healthy and uncontaminated. And so they had a whole system of things and people and places you should avoid in order to avoid catching sin. And so Jesus says something to them that really blows that way of thinking out of the water. He says there in Matthew 15, uh, if we can have that up, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. So Jesus is saying, guys, you're partially right. There is such a thing as sin. It is a bit like a, a, an infection. But where they are catastrophically wrong is in thinking it's out there to be avoided. When Jesus says, actually, it comes from the human heart. And so it's not out there to be avoided. It's, it's in here to be acknowledged, admitted and confessed. So in other words, he says to them, if you are serious about avoiding sin, you've got to avoid your own heart. Because that's where it comes from. And we may listen along to that and think, yeah, go Jesus, stick it to the Pharisees. But actually that is just as challenging in our own culture today. Because that the narrative that so many of us are, are imbibing from our surrounding culture is that if we want to be truly ourselves to truly flourish as the unique people that we are then we have to look deep into our hearts and whatever we find in there we must own and express and live out I was looking at a, a movie trailer now, I can't remember what it was for, but in the, in the trailer one of the characters was saying to a young man, you've, you've got to discover who you really are, no one else can tell you that. And you've got to be true to yourself. Jesus Christ is saying, if you look deep into your heart, you're not going to find the solution to your angst, you're going to find the cause of it. And he gives a few symptoms of, of having hearts that are not right. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, all of these things happen because our hearts aren't right. And that phrase sexual immorality Jesus mentioned really is just an umbrella term for all sexual activity outside of marriage. In other words, Jesus took the Old Testament law on sexual sin and far from dismissing it, he actually intensifies it. And that would have included adultery, which Jesus lists separately there. It would have included sex before marriage. It would have included uh, prostitution. And it would have included sexual immorality. would have included any kind of same-sex sexual behaviour as well. So Jesus is saying that any sexual behaviour outside the covenant of marriage is not right. He's not easy on this issue. But he's not easy for all of us. Uh, Final passage just in this quick survey of what Jesus thinks is Matthew 19 verses 3 uh, to 6. Again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They come to him and say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Uh, We're told that they're coming to test him. They're not seeking to learn from him. They're trying to kind of trap him. They're trying to get Jesus in a gotcha moment so that they can discredit him. So they think, okay, let's, let's take a really controversial issue, divorce, throw that at Jesus and see what he says. Well, Jesus replies by saying, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now a few things are going on there at the same time. Notice Jesus responds by quoting from two parts of Genesis. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? That's Genesis 1. And said, now quoting Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus answers their question by going back to Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees by appealing to the Scriptures. And he even says to them, haven't you read this stuff? You know, the Pharisees were were proud of how thoroughly they knew the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus says, listen, did you ever get as far as, I don't know, page one of the Old Testament? Did you make it that far? But notice what he's doing. He's asked a question about divorce, but he answers by talking about marriage. He says you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But moreover, by going back to Genesis 1, he's saying you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand gender. So he goes back to Genesis 1 and reminds us that the Creator made us male and female. And then says it is for this reason that we have this thing called marriage. Now, I don't need to tell you that that is a a screamingly controversial assertion to make in today's culture. So let me remind you immediately, Jesus is saying it, so don't, don't shoot the messenger. But he does say it. 
Jesus is saying that his understanding of what marriage is is all based on the assumption that God has made us as male and female. It's something about that differentiation that allows for the existence of marriage. And so Jesus' definition, however uncomfortable this is for us, Jesus' definition of marriage is that it is between a man and a woman. He says that union uniquely can be described as one flesh. Now, two quick things to say about that, because that is such a difficult truth. It's such a difficult claim. Uh, the first thing to, to note is that, that Jesus' teaching on sex and marriage is countercultural in our age, precisely because it is countercultural in every age. There will be something in how every human society thinks about sex and marriage that Jesus is going to deeply critique. So we are not the first generation to find Jesus' teaching deeply uncomfortable. It has always been countercultural in one respect or another. The second thing to, to note is that Jesus' defining of marriage between a man and a woman is not arbitrary. It's not whimsical. Uh, we don't have time to go into this in detail, but in, in the Bible, the, the union of a man and a woman points beyond itself to something deeply significant. Uh, if you know that the opening chapters of the Bible, you will know that in Genesis 1 we're given a, a kind of wide-angle lens view of creation. You've got lots of special effects and CGI. You've got planets and species and ecosystems. It's all, it's all epic and operatic even. And then in Genesis 2, we, we suddenly find ourselves in a garden watching a guy and a girl get together. And the question is, why does the Bible story begin there? And the reason, the answer is, that that getting together of the man and the woman is a picture of what the whole Bible is going to be about. Because as the Old Testament unfolds, that union is going to be a picture of the eventual union of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. And so the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament is not just the big power sort of centre in the sky, he's a husband. And his people are not merely his, his subjects or his fan club or his servants, they're his bride. Often, sadly, his unfaithful bride. Uh, one of the first things Jesus describes himself as in the New Testament is the bridegroom. He says, the bridegroom has come. He's saying, I am that, that God of the Old Testament who can't help but love his people in a way that makes just unbelievable and undeserving covenants with them. And the rest of the New Testament shows that the, the, the people of Jesus, the church, is his bride. And the end of the Bible gives us a, a, a wedding. So the Bible begins with, with a marriage and it, it ends with a marriage. And the marriage it begins with is a picture of and a foretaste of the marriage with which it ends. And so this idea of a man and a woman being united to get together in marriage is, is a picture of the thing God is doing in the universe. He is making a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. 
And so one of the most significant purposes of marriage in the Bible is to be a signpost to what God is doing, a, a picture of the love that Jesus Christ has for his people. Well, as I began to kind of come to terms with these uh, these scriptures and, and others in the Bible as well, it, I, I began to, to realise as a very young Christian that if I was going to be a follower of Jesus, if I was going to continue to be a disciple of his, then it wouldn't be appropriate for me to indulge those feelings of attraction towards other men. That I couldn't be a follower of Jesus and do that with integrity. And so therefore I needed to make a decision. I needed to decide whether or not to continue with Jesus. And so my choice was either sort of ditch Jesus and say, well, you know, it was nice while it lasted, Jesus. It's not, it's not you, it's me. And, but, but my sexuality is just too important for me to kind of compromise in order to follow you. Or I follow Jesus and let his words shape how I view my sexuality and what I do with it. Now, to many people today, that choice would be a complete no-brainer. You've got a choice between fulfilling your sexuality, which for many people today means being true to who you really are, or following some old religious leader and a book that's thousands of years old. So my decision to, to remain a follower of Jesus and to, to live in obedience to his teaching is not an obvious decision to make. So let me give you three reasons why I made that decision and why every day when I get out of bed I make that same decision each day. Three reasons why following Jesus is worth it when it comes to our sexuality. Uh, the first is this, and it's the most obvious and the most important. It's because of who Jesus is. You see, that the way our culture would see that decision actually is not right. It is not a choice between fulfilling my sexuality and, and following some old religious leader because Jesus is not some old religious leader. Uh, Jesus never claimed to be that. Jesus did not arrive on this planet and say, hey, there's, there's some great religious leaders who've, who've come before me and who will come after me and I want to add another voice to that list of, of religious leaders and, you know, you can take it or leave it. No, Jesus came as our creator. Which means the man who is saying these uncomfortable and challenging things about sexual feelings and, and marriage and, and all the rest of it is, he's the God who thought me up. He's the God who had the, the idea of you in the first place. And so the amazing thing about following Jesus is you're following someone who knows you better than you do. You're following someone actually who loves you even more than you love yourself. And you're following someone who is more committed to your ultimate joy than even you are. And so, it really is a no-brainer. We'd be fools not to follow him. 
So this may sound like a, a cop-out to my, my friends who are not Christian believers, but I have to say to them, when they wonder at some of the lifestyle choices I've made in being a Christian, that they're not going to make complete sense of those decisions until they understand who Jesus Christ really is to me. Um, there's a, a saying I saw on a friend's office wall that said this, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. It's true, isn't it? If you take a music video and, and remove the sound, it starts to look kind of stupid. You put the music back on and it may begin to make a little bit of sense. Unless people understand who Jesus Christ is, our lives will not make sense. Because all that we do is driven by who we understand him to be. So that's the first reason. It's because of who Jesus is. He, he's my creator who died for me and rose again for me. And when friends of mine or other people come up to me and occasionally this happens and they say, well, listen, you just can't have those beliefs about sex and marriage today. I say to them, well, you may not realise you're doing this, but you're actually telling me to stop being a follower of Jesus. Because I have these beliefs because of what I believe about him. And in most cases, that, that's enough to give someone pause and make them think, OK, yeah, I, I, I can't push you on that if that's your faith. I can't tell you to stop following Jesus. But just every now and then, someone will say, well, if that's what Jesus teaches, you need to stop following him. At which point I, need to, I say to them, well, please show me what you have going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him, such that I should follow what you teach on this issue and not what Jesus teaches on this issue. And by the way, he died for me and rose again. That's where the bar is currently set. If you can raise that, I'm genuinely interested. But if you want me to change my view on this issue, you need to change my view on Jesus. So because of who he is, the second reason I follow him, even when it, it has implications about not living out some of the, the attractions that I feel. The second reason is because of how Jesus calls all of us. Um, Mark 8, verses 34 and 35 are key verses for us on this. Uh, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Key word there is whoever. Jesus says if, if anyone is going to follow him, they will need to deny self and take up the cross. In other words, Jesus is saying that for anyone to be a follower of him is going to involve saying a very profound no to some of our deepest longings and desires in our hearts. It is going to involve taking up a cross. Jesus goes on to say that um, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words, Jesus is letting us know ahead of time that following him is going to feel like he's killing us at certain times. 
Because at some point in our discipleship, Jesus is going to put his finger on something that we feel as though we cannot possibly do life without. And he's going to say to us, I need you to give that to me now. I need you to trust that to me now. Now the wonderful, beautiful thing about this is, as we deny self, we don't become less who we are. We don't become non-persons. As we deny self and follow Jesus, we actually become the people God always intended us to be. As I deny myself and follow Jesus, I become more my real self, not less. But what Jesus is saying is that the cost of discipleship is the same for everyone. So let me put it this way. If we're tempted to think as as Christians that the cost of discipleship is just too high for our LGBT friends, then we really think it's too high for anyone. And it may well be a sign that we've not truly started to count the cost of discipleship in our own lives. I began to realise as a a youngish Christian that actually the cost of discipleship for me was just one type of the same cost for everyone. I wasn't on a different deal to anybody else. That following Jesus, even in this one area of life, is going to be costly for any of us. We're all going to have to say no to some pretty significant sexual desires if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. Jesus calls all of us to costly discipleship, but what we realise as we walk with him is that actually what feels like losing our lives is actually gaining them. And we begin to realise, actually, it's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. However much it costs, we get far more by following Jesus than we ever give up. And then the final reason why it is worth it is because of what Jesus offers. And there's any number of things we could could look at profitably as examples of this. I just want to take us to John uh, 6 as as an example of this. John 6, verse 35. Uh, okay, that's the wrong verse. Um, so let me look up the right one. I may have got the wrong number there. I bet you were wondering what I was going to do with that verse. <laughs> um, John 6, uh, verse 30 something at least. Let me find it. James John 6, verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, when I first started to look at these I am claims of Jesus, I came to, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the good shepherd. And those things feel urgent and significant and life-changing. I am the bread of life feels a little bit flat. I don't know what to do with that one. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and I go, "Um, okay, well well done, I guess. You know, I don't know what that means. I like bread. I'm I'm pro-bread, so... I guess that's good. And it's because, we, it's because of how we think about bread. And I was grabbing lunch with someone out 
a few days ago and the waiter came to the table and said would you like any any bread for the table and we said no we're fine thanks and that's how we think about bread and so when Jesus says I'm the bread of life we we tend to think well that's it's as though Jesus is is saying would you like any spirituality for the table and we think it's a take it or leave it thing but in the time of Jesus bread was the staple uh, if you didn't have bread you didn't live no bread meant no life you would spend every day working to make sure you would have bread to eat so when Jesus says I am the bread of life what he's actually saying is I am to your soul what bread is to a starving stomach when Jesus says I'm the bread of life he is saying I am the one the one relationship that can satisfy you at the very deepest level and our problem is we are looking to so many other things to be the bread of life our culture is looking to romantic and sexual fulfillment to be the bread of life but it can't be and if you get together with someone or if you marry someone thinking that person is going to fulfill you you're going to be a nightmare to be married to because you're putting a burden on that person they were never designed to bear they are not the bread of life but Jesus is So because of, of Jesus, and because I still continue to wrestle with same-sex attraction, I'm committed to being celibate. And if I'm honest, there are times that can be deeply painful. There are times, if I'm also honest, I see from my friends that being married can also be deeply painful. <laughs> But there are times when I, I think, man, I would, I, would love to be, I would love to be a husband. There are times when I would, I would love to be a father. But actually that wouldn't be the real win for me. No, the real win is that I might get more of Jesus. The real win is that I might just maybe... <laughs> get to be a little bit more like him because those other things are, are good gifts from God when received in the right way but only Jesus is the bread of life only Jesus is the one who can ultimately satisfy and so whatever we might lose if we get Jesus we've won we've hit the jackpot only Jesus is going to be worth it let me pray for us and then we'll transition our father if we truly understand the words of Jesus on sex and marriage they will be deeply challenging deeply humbling and deeply convicting for every single one of us.
And so we praise you that Jesus didn't just come to expose what is wrong in our hearts, but he came through his death and resurrection to make our hearts new, to give us new life, to restore us to our creator, to give forgiveness for our sins. Father, help each one of us to repent of all of those tendencies in our hearts that are not right. Help us to flee from temptation. Help us to pursue Christ. And we pray in his precious name. Amen.